Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Well, good morning. Uh, I hope that everyone had a safe and restful Memorial Day weekend and uh, came out of it more proud to be an American. And we're always uh, very grateful to pause and reflect on the sacrifices that so many made so that we could enjoy freedom. And so as we move uh, on to this week, we're talking about a couple of really big headlines uh, that the long weekend brought, which include the Fiscal Responsibility Act and also the impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. And so this morning, uh, right off the top, we're going to be simulcasting yet again on our airwaves as well as airwaves in Texas with my good friend Chris Salcedo, who I believe is there. Good morning, Chris. Morning, Jenna. Nice to be with you. And something new has been added. Not only are we simulcasting on the uh, the networks you mentioned and the stations you mentioned, also on the TNT radio network worldwide. Our friends in Australia, friends in Europe uh, are also able to tune in and, and hear some of this very American debate that we're going to be having this morning. Because, I, I mean, I gave them, the, the folks a little bit of a tease as we are waiting for you that uh, there's going to be one thing that you and I pretty much agree on, and there's going to be some debate on on one of those topics. So I'm going to leave it up to you ladies first. Which one do you want to talk about first? (laughs) Oh, uh, you know me. I'm the lawyer. Let's go straight to the debate. So let's talk about about the Fiscal Responsibility Act, because I think that um, a lot of people, you know, we'll start nationally, and then we'll go uh, homeward to to your home there in Texas. But, um, of course, you know, the Fiscal Responsibility Act is uh, this this uh, debt ceiling crisis. And I think for a lot of us, um, the frustration here from my perspective is that Republicans don't control Congress fully. Um, We have a slim majority in the House. We don't control the White House. And so I'm a realist when I'm looking at this. And I do think that Speaker Kevin McCarthy actually came away with a better deal than he could have because he actually got the Democrats to negotiate. And here's why. There's a couple of things that um, it, it, as much as you know, the, the GOP, and I get this, is very frustrated. I do think that um, he stands firmly behind this, and he should, because it is stopping a lot of the out-of-control spending. Um, they are going to claw back tens of billions in unspent COVID funds. And mm-hmm. to me as well, some of the appropriations for um, what could be the new IRS agents, at least according to my understanding, that can actually be reappropriated. Those funds can be reappropriated by Congress, not to be spent on the IRS, but on things like uh, border well, security and other things. So I think this was the best deal they were going to get. Well, okay. First off, uh, history shows that when the Democrats are completely in the minority, they get a lot better deals. When, when uh, President Trump and the uh, Senate and the House were in Republican hands, Democrats were being catered to and knelt to and had it, having the nearest butt cheek kissed by establishment Republicans at every turn inside of the, inside the legislature. So whenever Democrats are in the minority, they control one House. Uh, that doesn't seem to encumber them, and they seem to get far better deals and far more 
by the way, when Republicans are fully in charge, we're still spending more money than we're bringing in in taxes. Now, as far as this deal is concerned, we went from a, a deal that was a modest proposal. It wasn't cuts. No matter what anybody tells you, it wasn't cuts. It was a reduction in the rate of spending over 10 years that would have resulted in $5 trillion fewer being overspent. It was a, it was a step in the right direction for an exchange of one year. One year of raising the debt ceiling, uh, $1.5 trillion. Now, the new deal is this, folks. Not only do we not save any money, not, not reduce any rate of spending, we freeze our level of spending next year at Joe Biden's already unacceptably high level. And then the year after that, there's a 1% increase, right? So we not only didn't get any re reductions in the rate of spending, we actually either stayed flat or increased the rate of spending, which this government spends too much money as it is. As to the IRS agents, $20 billion was clawed back, but the 87,000 IRS agents with the $60 billion that are left will still be hired to target middle America. So that, that's why you're starting to see discussions online of a vacate the chair vote. There was one that was up on Twitter, Jenna, that was put up and then taken down that allegedly came from the Freedom Caucus. I'm not sure if that was a draft or it ended up being bogus or what have you, but I can tell you the conservative movement isn't happy with the capitulation because that's all Republicans know how to do is capitulate. Well, and, and, I, and I agree with you, Chris, that, that historically, and I'm frustrated as much as you are, that when the GOP is in the minority, it seems like we consider only, hey, we didn't bend over backwards completely as a win. And when the Democrats are in the minority, they hold the line. And the reason for that, I think, is because the GOP just doesn't go in lockstep together. They just don't like the Democrats do. And that's that's the reality. But I do think that it's it's unfair to suggest uh, for some of these other not not what you're suggesting, but a lot of these people that are suggesting, you know, have a motion to vacate the chair and we need to go after Kevin McCarthy. And listen, I historically have not been the biggest fan of Kevin McCarthy, but I do think that he did a good job with what he had and the GOP slim majority that he had. And this is not at all as bad as it could have been. And I think there still are significant wins. And the issue here mainly is because you're only seeing what people are frustrated about with this bill and you're not seeing what the actual wins are. And and I don't think that a lot of people are seeing this in common everyday uh, language that people like me that's you know not an economist um, that you know this isn't really in my wheelhouse that that actually understands some of the wins here now now could we have had more possibly but again I'm looking at this being a realist that if we don't get something through then that would have been a complete and utter disaster and it's and for some of the people that are saying well then we just shouldn't have had a deal at all and we just have to hold the line vote no well then you know you're not living in reality these are the same people who are saying you know well if Trump doesn't get the nomination then I'm just not voting. So fine, you're going to reelect Biden just because you don't have your preference in the nomination. That's not living in reality. Well, Joe Biden, Joe Biden sat on his duff for 90 days and the Democrats sat on their duffs and did nothing uh, because they wanted to continue their profligate spending. I have to I have to reemphasize. Not only did we not get a lot, we didn't get any reductions in spending, which, of course, is the driver of our inf uh, inflation which, you know, we're already approaching $1 trillion in interest alone on the debt. And right now, with the Republicans' blessings, Jenna, we are on track for $52 trillion in debt by the time we reach uh, the next decade. 
So in a decade's time, the Republicans have put their stamp of approval, if this goes through, have put their stamp of approval on profligate, irresponsible, feckless, and yes, existential threat to the existence of the United States. I don't have to point out that it's economic theory because it's happened in places like Spain, in places like Greece. This is this level of spending didn't need to be agreed to. We didn't turn the the, the tide back down to a more, uh, how shall I say, a pro-American mode of spending where the government actually spends the money we the people give it. We didn't do that. We continue to increase irresponsible spending. Now, let me let me pivot because I know I'm looking at the clock. And I want to make sure because I want to pick your legal brain on what's going on with the impeachment. But, but l- let me say one last thing on that, though. I oh, do think that this sure. was a first step for Kevin McCarthy, because if they're limiting the top line federal spending and I agree with you, the whole, you know, hawkish kind of outlook on uh, on American economy isn't going to be helpful in the long term. And we're just I mean, there's no way eventually we are going to implode if we have this kind of debt that we can't handle. But I think that this was a first step to at least limit the top line and then further negotiate from there, which I know doesn't sound, you know, as as great of a win as we want. But again, I think nope. that this was the best that we were going to do. But well, don't, you know, don't forget. And, that, and then McCarthy agreed to push it not to a one year extension to a two-year extension. So we've taken this out of the presidential discussion. Any Republican president who wanted to run on fiscal responsibility, Lord knows who that is, anybody wanted to run on that, guess what? That issue is off the table because we don't get to have the discussion for another two years, which this level of spending that this government has been doing is dangerous. It is dangerous, and we didn't need to accommodate it. We needed to reverse it, and we didn't do that. And I think you're, I think you're right about one thing. This was a test for Kevin McCarthy, and I'm going to leave it up to the folks as to whether or not he passed. So let's let me let me pick that legal brain of yours, if I can. The yeah, impeachment let's pivot. Of Ken, well, the, the the impeachment of of Ken Paxton in the Texas House. There's a there's a government code six six five dot zero eight one in Texas. I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but basically what it says is you cannot consider or even do impeachment proceedings. That, that result from activities that happened before the last election. The, the premise of that law or that government code being, hey, the people saw what was in the last election, they saw the charges that were put out, and they didn't believe it or they didn't think it was that big a deal, and they voted for this candidate anyway. So you can't launch an impeachment effort in the state of Texas on activities that happened before the last election, but that's precisely what the House did, and they didn't vote on uh, all of the 20 articles of impeachment, they had one vote. It was all or nothing. So, so it was basically yeah. an impeachment omnibus is what is what they're doing, yeah. which is which yeah. seems to be completely out of process. And I'm not um, a- as familiar as you are with that precise uh, Texas code. But that's but if that is the correct reading of the law, then, you know, this should be dismissed just on procedural grounds. And um, you know, and, and this is why fundamental fairness is always at the heart of why of, of a fair and accurate uh, laws and proceedings so that you don't get a politicized process. But that's what all of this is about. And um, and especially when Attorney General Ken Paxton uh, said that the Speaker of the House should resign for uh, you know, apparently, and I've seen the videos, and it really looks like like he was openly drunk on the on the uh, House floor, and you know, calling well, for that. Saying, just to be clear, just to be clear, Jenna, what we've been saying is the Speaker of the House was impaired in some way. We don't know 
on what substance he was impaired. I right. can't confirm that. I, I know there are vi- there are photos. But I mean, I've seen the videos. It definitely looks like something's going on. And I think that you described it aptly to say, you know, whether it was alcohol, whether it was another substance, he certainly looks impaired, um, you know, just from a an average citizen looking at it, you know, I think, you know, he, he, he has the demarcations of being visibly intoxicated. So, you know, so that should be the focus of the investigation, but now we've pivoted toward saying, okay, well, or or at least the, the rhinos in Texas have pivoted toward attacking uh, Ken Paxton. And now with this totally sham impeachment, the thing that's so frustrating as well, uh, apparently under procedure in Texas is that now that the articles of impeachment have actually gone forward. Um, Ken Paxton is now removed. He has his um, his acting, yep. the acting attorney general, and he's just waiting for the trial in the Senate. And so, I mean, how, w- when does that happen? I uh, hear August, uh, no later than the, the first part of August. And, uh, you know, um, the best case scenario, in my view, if, if the Senate looks at the law, looks at the statute, looks at the, the politics of all this, and this was, and the Democrats are crowing on Twitter. The Democrats are saying that impeachment is a political exercise, not a legal one. And <laughs> on that, they're absolutely true. The impeachments of Trump were all political. There was nothing legally based in them. It was because these individuals were standing up to the status quo inside of the Uniparty, the Republicans and Democrats, whether it be Trump or whether it be Ken Paxton. And I've got to tell you, Jenna, and your audience, the long knives of the Republican Bush, Rove, and Richards establishment Republican Party. I know Ann Richards was a Democrat, but a lot of those Democrats flipped to become Republicans when the, when the winds changed here in Texas so they could continue to be in elected office and ruin our lives. Um, I, what you've got to know is they've had the long knives out for Ken Paxton since he won the attorney general job against their wishes. He didn't genuflect, mm-hmm. didn't ask for their support. He didn't uh, he didn't lay off Democrats the way he was supposed to. He has been suing Obama. He's been suing Biden to protect Texans and the establishment Republicans who are really Democrats in this state can't handle that. They just don't like it. Republicans don't behave like that. It is up to the Democrats to behave like that. And that's why you see the long knives out for Ken Paxton. Yeah, I agree. And, and Chris Salcedo, always great to join you. And, you know, this is just one of those um, other instances where impeachment should not be purely political. We shouldn't ever be abusing the process just to get political opponents out of office. This should be something that is based in law and fact. But we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you are just joining us this morning, we were talking uh, briefly about the impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton out of the state of Texas. And I think that this is actually uh, one of the biggest stories in the country right now that is not getting nearly enough attention. But Matt Rinaldi, who is the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, put out this statement uh, just a couple of days ago. The Texas House today in a politically motivated impeachment driven by Democrats voted to suspend our Republican Attorney General from office pending a Senate trial. It did so without 
considering any direct evidence without allowing legislators to interview or cross-examine witnesses, without placing witnesses under oath, without allowing members to talk to investigators, without making witness transcripts available to legislators, without subpoenaing witnesses with direct knowledge of allegations, and without allowing the attorney general to present evidence or argument. The result of this indefensible process was to impeach based solely on accusations, hearsay, rumor, innuendo, and speculation. We thank President Trump, Senator Cruz, and the 23 House Republicans, including the two most senior House Republicans who stood against House leadership and the sham of an impeachment. We expect a fairer process in the Republican-controlled Senate. So the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas, Matt Rinaldi, joins me now. And uh, good morning, Matt. And uh, you know, this was a, an incredibly... Uh, great statement, I think, that is just evidencing how this this wasn't based in law or fact. This just seems like it's entirely political. What is going on and why does the Republican Party of Texas uh, seemingly hate Ken Paxton so much? Well, the Republican Party of Texas, which which I'm which I'm chairman of, absolutely does not hate Ken Paxton so much. The, pro- the problems in the House and what people don't understand is they think, well, the Republicans control the Texas House, um, you know, because they have a majority. But that isn't the case here. We, we tried to alert everybody in the first week of session to the fact that in today's political climate, we can no longer give Democrats power like we have in the Texas House traditionally. Texas is the only state in the country which I'm aware of where Republicans control a chamber and then voluntarily appoint Democrats to positions of power. They appoint Democrats to committee chairmanships, 40% of the committee chairmanships last session. And to do that, they have to make them part of the leadership team and give them concessions. And one of the concessions this session, obviously, was to offer up the head of the Republican attorney general to Democrats. Wow. And this is something that I think is just so frustrating to so many of us who want conservative leadership. And then we see these Republicans in name only. I mean, that's a very apt term that are making these types of concessions where if this were Democrats in the majority, they wouldn't be doing that. They wouldn't be appointing Republicans and giving all of these concessions. So, you know, why is it the state of Texas? I mean, is this just are they getting some kind of benefit to be reelected and they think that they have to? Or is this just something that's, you know, some other type of gamesmanship? You know, it's somebody had said something the other day, which I think was very astute. I served in the Texas House, and, and this person said, uh, "It's the it's the world's weirdest cult, almost." They they appoint Democrats to positions of power in the Texas House because that's the way it's been done in the past, and uh, it's without regard to any other considerations, such as the fact that Democrats have gone so far to the left, it's absolutely impossible to include them in a leadership team with Republicans in today's political climate. And what you get is something like happened this session, right? You appoint Democrats to high-ranking leadership positions in the House. The House ends up attacking the Republican Party of Texas all session. They battled our conservative lieutenant governor. They killed Governor Abbott's top priorities, and now they end up impeaching the Republican attorney general. It's an absolute disgrace. Yeah, so so I was uh, on last segment with Chris Salcedo, who's a good friend, and um, and and he also is in the state of Texas, and he mentioned a statute that I actually wasn't aware of that uh, 
governs the impeachment process in Texas, and you may be familiar with it, but his contention uh, was that under this statute, an impeachment of a of a sitting officer um, could not happen if it if it was over facts and circumstances that predated the next election and were known to the electorate. And certainly here, uh, everything that's being alleged uh, about Ken Paxton um, was all in the news ahead of his election anyway. And the voters still decided uh, to elect Ken Paxton over uh, George P. Bush. And, you know, I personally, I endorsed Ken Paxton in my personal capacity, so I think they made a great decision. Um, but is that true in terms of the way that the impeachment process works in Texas? Yes, absolutely, 100%. I'm a lawyer, too. Uh, Section 652 of the Texas Government Code was completely ignored by the House impeachment team. Um, and what it says is, prior you can't consider events prior to the election of a state officer um and what the texas supreme court has interpreted that as dating back to a a case uh, the reeves case in 1925 um was that each term is a distinct election since we do not have continuity in office therefore prior to your last election you cannot consider uh, any acts in the impeachment and there's a long line of precedent spanning almost a hundred years which interprets it in all the same way and when the texas house and uh house impeachment team got up or the general investigative committee they basically just ignored all of that precedent and just said nope it has to be prior to the election to office well, and, and this just seems so absurd that they are literally ignoring the rules. And so do you have confidence that the Senate would enforce these and that Paxton could file something similar to a motion to dismiss, you know, basically saying that, that this is out of order uh, and and that, that would actually be legitimized? I mean, otherwise, they're just proceeding without any viable legal grounds. Yes, I do have confidence in the Senate. Um, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's been an absolute conservative champion. Um, he has not voluntarily shared um, leadership with Democrats uh, in the Texas Senate and has uh, has worked with the party, um, you know, a- a- as a Republican controlled chamber should. Yeah, well, and, and so uh, the timeline here then is uh, my understanding is that the the trial is set for August. So, I mean, coming up fairly quickly, but that's still a couple of months that uh, Ken Paxton would be out of office. And there's a lot of time then to, um, you know, negotiate some things and to, to have, you know, maybe um, some of these things change. Um, so, you know, what what does this actually look like on the ground in Texas and and in terms of the political fallout of this? I mean, are people there understanding how this is against the rules? Is the Republican Party generally frustrated with the majority for violating the rules? And, you know, what, what I, I feel like there's just, we always ask for accountability and it really doesn't seem like um, accountability happens. Yeah, I mean, I, from what we're seeing so far in some preliminary polling we've done is that, that people are, are are very upset and very energized about this. Um, and they're, they're ready to take it out on Republicans in the primary and elect, you know, conservatives to replace people who voted for impeachment, um, and who drove the impeachment. You know, you, you, you hope that that keeps up during the 
the seven or eight months until the Republican primary. Um, but it, it looks like it does. We, we did a poll of the, the speaker, and I think there was about a 30 percent shift in the speaker's popularity since, since January um, negatively. So people look energized. People look ready, ready to act on this, and they don't want to see the Republican uh, attorney general impeached. Yeah, and and nor should they. I mean, this should never be such a political process that that anyone, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, weaponizes the system and the rules and ignores process simply to target a political opponent. And so um, so where is the governor on this? I mean, obviously, you know, this is something that is more of a, um, a, a legislative proceeding. But, um, you know, where is Governor Abbott on this? I mean, the governor's been notably silent. Um, I don't think he should be. I think you should speak up against this. I mean, it's clear this committee, as you said, it's, it's a weaponized committee in the House to attack political opponents. Uh, it attacked Senator Ken Paxton. Meanwhile, um, there are Democrats in the state house who spent a year in jail during their terms, and this investigative committee didn't do anything to them. Um, so, you know, it, it's completely a select few who get targeted by this committee. And it's always people with the wrong politics. It's never Democrats or establishment Republicans. Right. And and that's what's so frustrating. It's like impeachment exists for a reason so that you can actually get rid of people who violate their oath of office and who have actual and there's actual grounds for that impeachment process. But it shouldn't be used as just a political uh, tool and to weaponize the system. And so um, I likewise have been you know, have been frustrated with um, with Greg Abbott. I hadn't seen anything either. But, um, you know, you simply confirmed that. And so um, Matt Rinaldi, who is uh, the chairman of the Republican Party of Texas. So we have a lot of listeners here on AFR that um, that listen from the state of Texas. I imagine uh, that they are listening frustrated uh, with this right now. And so um, what can they do to get involved and, uh, you know, short of, of coming? And I, I saw, you know, the gallery full on um, the impeachment day when the vote happened mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Um, but what can they do it to either support Ken Paxton or just make their uh, voice known in terms of, you know, this type of a sham process? You know, uh, call your state senator uh, and let them know what you think about it, because they're going to be taking this up very soon uh, and let them know you don't want it to be a political process like in the House. Uh, You know, I think the Senate should take this up immediately. I think they should have a, you know, the process is kind of fuzzy, but uh, because there hasn't been many impeachments in Texas, but I think they should do a motion to dismiss or judgment as a matter of law process where uh, they can determine some of these legal matters up front without taking lengthy testimony. Uh, and hopefully take care of it right away. Yeah, and um, and one last one last question for you, uh, Matt Rinaldi. Really appreciate your time. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, well, actually, two last questions. Well, first, you know, you said you've been in the in the legislature, and you know, d- do people's calls like that um, are they actually effective? I mean, when people call in, it's you know, and I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, I've called, but it doesn't really seem to matter. I mean. Do do you think that the Texas state legislature is actually listening to their constituents and will that type of a thing actually matter? Yeah, they, I mean, they really do. I, I remember, you know, times on the floor where people have gotten texts from constituents and they've been you know, visibly nervous that that, you know, th- this person may be angry and can affect their reelection. I mean, I remember someone saying, oh, you know, just got a text, looked at their phone, and they said, you know, who's texting you? They're like, oh, it's Margaret. She's mad. I'm like, who's Margaret? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
and they they really do pay attention to you know the local Republicans who drive opinion. And and that's good. Then I then I hope that everyone from the state of Texas, or actually everyone of every state that's listening, your legislator should know your name, and you should have their cell phone number, and you should be texting them so that you're like Margaret, and you're saying, you know, hey, what are you doing? Because that's how we keep our system accountable, and and that's how we keep our legislators accountable. And then um, last question, just you know, from a from a legal perspective, that's interesting. So you know, you'd mentioned um, whether it's a you know a motion to dismiss or motion. Um, for judgment as a matter of law, who is presiding over uh, the the impeachment proceedings, the trial in the Senate? Is that the lieutenant governor, or who actually presides? Yeah, the lieutenant governor, and, and you know, you would I think in other in other states uh, they've you know they they determine those matters by a vote. So effectively, the the whole Senate's making the determination, but the lieutenant governor pre- presides over the proceedings according to the rules that the Senate sets. So he would be the one then to look at um, a motion and he would be the one to take that up and decide or does that have to go to the full Senate for vote? I think that would I think that would be determined under the rules that the Senate sets. So I think they could set that that he would determine a motion like a judge would or that the entire Senate effectively is the judge and votes. Interesting. Okay. Well, and this is why, you know, procedure is always different in different chambers. I've, I learned from, you know, my time um, practicing in, in Colorado when I was much more heavily involved in litigation that, you know, local rules matter and, and the um, the procedure, you know, can vary depending on jurisdiction, county and other things. And obviously, you know, you know that as well, Matt, from uh, being a lawyer, but, you know, it's always interesting to see how a lot of these things um, and who decides what and how really can affect the outcome. But um, Matt, Rinaldi, thanks so much for joining me this morning, and um, we hope the best for for Ken Paxson. And it's just it's so frustrating. I mean, just like how uh, we were all so frustrated seeing uh, President Trump go through two sham impeachments. Um, it's frustrating when the process is weaponized against a political opponent so unfairly, and it's using the resources of the state legislature in a way that is you know profoundly wasteful. And um, and it's just it's always so frustrating. But really appreciate that. Where can people find you? Um, if they are listening from the state of Texas and want more information. We're at um, www.texasgop.org. All right. Thanks so much. Well, Matt Rinaldi, and uh, you can also uh, reshare his great statement that was on Twitter. Um, I found that that was from May 27th, and uh, that is titled The Republican Party of Texas Statement on the Impeachment of Attorney General Ken Paxton. So, um, you know, th- this is just for me as as a lawyer and as someone who has observed uh, the political process and, um, you know, the legal process. These are things that matter and holding our state and federal officials accountable for this kind of wasteful weaponizing of uh, of a political process. Uh, we need to be doing that and we need to be doing more of that. And this is why we as Christians and as conservatives need to engage in our system and we need to make sure that we are part of we the people and we never ever just sit back watch the headlines and move on with our day we need to be actively engaged and involved and i encourage everyone who is listening from the state of texas call your senators tell them what you think we'll be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning and we'll be talking with trish regan about the debt ceiling deal we'll be right back
Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you are just joining us this morning, uh, we've been talking about the impeachment of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Um, the chairman of the Republican Party joined me in the last segment um, talking about just what a sham that is. Um, but the other big story, and I think uh, really the biggest in the country today beyond the DeSantis versus Trump stuff, is all about the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And, um, and the, the GOP largely, it seems like, uh, is just complaining about this and saying, you know, that, that uh, Kevin McCarthy caved and Speaker McCarthy needs to uh, have a motion to vacate the chair and are kind of, um, you know, up in arms about this. Um, but I'm a little bit more of a realist here. And I think that uh, my good friend Trish Regan, who is the host of the Trish Regan show on the Salem Podcast Network, where my show, The Jenna Ellis Show, is also on. Um, I think that Trish is also a little bit more of a realist and she is definitely a lot more uh, well-versed in uh, economics and um, this entire subject matter than me. So I'm very glad that she joins me this morning uh, to break this down. So good morning, Trish. Good morning, Jenna. It's great to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk with you, too. And I always love listening to your commentary on topics like this because um, it really helps people like me understand, you know, kind of what is actually part of this bill, why, um, you know, in in my view, at least, Kevin McCarthy didn't cave as much as, you know, some people would suggest. Um, so what's your opinion overall on the Fiscal Responsibility Act and uh, how we as conservatives should be looking at this? Okay, so... Full disclosure, a lot of people may not like what I'm going to say. Full disclosure. But I am a realist like you, Jen. I mean, you just mentioned that. And and I think right now it it is very important for the sake of our nation's economy that we look at this as a glass half full. And I'm I'm thrilled with what he was able to accomplish. There are a lot of good things in there. But most importantly, Jenna, default is not an option. Okay, like it's just not an option. And anyone who can get out there and grandstand and say, oh, you know, well, we didn't get this. We didn't get that. Let's just keep in mind. Let's just remember it's all about compromise. This is called a negotiation. And the time to, to work on bringing our our insane levels of spending, because they are insane, down, that's for later. You don't do that when you're up at the 11th hour and there's talk of not having enough money to run the government and and possibly, you know, notes that are due in June or July not getting paid. I just want to say, Jenna, I feel passionately about this. The reason the United States enjoys so many privileges that it has is why, oh, we pay our bills. I started my career, actually, at Goldman Sachs years ago, trading sovereign debt in emerging market countries, specifically banana republics, Venezuela, Argentina, Mexico, Brazil, you name it. And there was a consistency that you always saw there. I mean, how many times did we have to go and restructure Argentina? Because Argentina didn't pay its bills. Well, we have a lot of reasons, Jenna, for sounding and being like a banana republic right now. The last thing we can possibly afford is to make financial mistakes that will literally ruin us forever. Like, I can't be dramatic enough about that. All of the things that we enjoy, our standard of living, they all come from 
the fact that we've got liquid, outstanding capital markets, which are based on the creditworthiness of the United States of America. We are like literally the gold standard. We cannot risk that. And I'm really disgusted. I'm just going to tell you, frankly, with both sides for trying to make this a, a political game. And you and I have talked before. I'm really I'm not that political. I'm just sort of what's best for the economy, what's best for national security. I mean, I'm very policy driven and I'm willing to call out either side when they're wrong. And Republicans that are attacking this, they are wrong. Democrats that are attacking this, they are wrong. And Trish Regan, I really appreciate this, you know, very non-political approach because I think that a lot of the um, the the hangover hatred maybe from you know from the war of getting a speaker mccarthy actually elected to speakership um it is kind of spilling over into this as well because where i see speaker mccarthy negotiating this and a lot of people saying that oh this was just the 11th hour well you know he's been negotiating this since um you, you know since at least February. I mean, this isn't just, you know, he kind of ignored it and came in last minute. Um, he was on record talking with the president um, and, you know, Chuck Schumer and all and all of them uh, months ago. And so you know, my view of his approach to this was very common sense, practical, and what he could actually get accomplished, not kind of this, well, in in a, an alternate reality or in the best of all possible worlds. Well, yeah, the best pos- of all possible worlds would be that America in Congress looks like Florida, right? Where we have a great governor, we have a super majority in both houses. We can kind of do, you know, the most conservative thing. But that's not true for the federal government. And so from a practical standpoint, then, how do you think people should be looking at what Kevin McCarthy accomplished and why is this actually a good deal? So it's so easy to take shots, right? And that's what just angers me about this whole thing, because Republicans, you know what, like at some point, guys, you just got to get your act together for the sake of the country, for the sake of your capital markets. How many people do I know on Wall Street telling me they don't have the clarity that they need? Our capital markets, like literally are everything. And if you can't borrow money right now to be in these markets because everything's so messed up, don't forget, you'd be looking at more regional bank closures and all kinds of problems because they hold this paper on their books. Well, then you get a huge problem. But these people don't understand that. All they want to do is take shots at McCarthy because it's easy. Politically, it's expedient. I get it. Nobody's happy with $30.4 trillion in debt, least of all me, Jenna. I mean, I, I really don't like it. But Do you want to burn the house down? No. You want to actually come up with solutions. He did a very good job coming up with solutions. I'm very pleased, for example, that it turns out you're going to have to pay your student loans back in three months. There are plenty of examples there where he was successful. And instead of being able to take a victory lap and say, let's move this country forward because it is what we are here to do. The adults in the room need to make sure this happens. You get a bunch of you know, you just get a bunch of political nonsense. I, I was, Frank, I was disappointed in DeSantis as well. He was using this as a political chip. I know that Donald Trump has said, oh, you know, fine, default. Wrong. It's not okay for anyone to be talking about this in such a cavalier way. This is, it's kind of like, 
Oh, I, I mean, if I were to even describe it, and I try not to be chicken little, because I know they're going to get a deal done. Nobody wants to be the one to, like, actually have the U.S. default on its debt for the first time in history. Don't forget, it was Alexander Hamilton who said, we must pay our debts. That will be the distinguishing factor for us historically forever. So you don't want to be the guy or the party for which this goes really badly. And I don't think we will risk that. But I, I resent that they're all taking this as an opportunity, whether it be AOC or whether it be Republicans that just don't like Kevin McCarthy. Get over it, guys. You've got to grow up. You've got to do task at hand what we sent you there to do. And, and, and hey, you want to bring the Tea Party back? Go for it. I'd be all for people who would actually be looking at this in a more prudent way. But let's come together, for goodness sakes, for the sake of the country when we need to do that. I, I'm passionate about it, and I'm very disturbed and very angry that we can get this broken because it, it bothers me that people will do this for their own political gain. It's a political chip. They see an opportunity. Let's go ever after Kevin McCarthy, who, by the way, is doing his job. He's doing what we sent him there to do. And I'm not necessarily a McCarthy fan. Right. And, and I'm talking with Trish Regan, who's host of the Trish Regan show on the Salem Podcast Network. And, you know, everything that you're saying, Trish, makes sense. And I can imagine that there are listeners out there that are going, well, wait a minute, this isn't what I'm hearing on, you know, my favorite networks and, uh, you know, and some of the, the rhetoric that's coming from, you know, the political sides. But I think uh, what you're saying makes sense. And, um, and I, did we lose Trish uh, potentially there? Um, well, we'll try to get her back. But um, but what she's saying is it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint that you, you can't just be Republican and Democrat and so completely entrenched in the absolute 100 percent best view of everything uh, Republican or Democrat, you know, depending on which side of the fence you're on, that you can't compromise and ever work across the aisle and you ever, you know, say, okay, we're going to actually make these uh, negotiations and these deals compromise when you're talking about a standard of morality or truth. Yeah. You don't compromise on, on those things, but compromise is not inherently a bad word or a bad thing all of the time. Sometimes it, it is necessitated and that is the art of negotiation and you compromise on things where there is give and take. And so, um, and, and I'm told that um, Trish is back and Trish, um, you know, th this is where I think a lot of people who initially didn't like Speaker McCarthy and were very opposed to his speakerships are using this as a way to simply say, well, we need to uh, use this as, as a, um, as a shiny object to just say, well, let's get rid of him as speaker when I can't really see a way that he could have negotiated this genuinely better given the hand that he was dealt. And this set us up well, I think, not only not to default on our debt, which, as you said, is just not an option, but to then move forward and actually have a baseline to negotiate further, especially because we really don't know what 2024 and the presidential election and the composition of Congress is really going to look like. Look, I think he should be doing a victory lap. I really do. And it's just so discouraging to me that his own party is so disjointed and, and so craving some kind of populist 
support. It's very easy to get out there on your soapbox and say, this is unacceptable because we still have crazy amounts of debt and we're heading towards bankruptcy, which, by the way, yes, we are. Actually, you might even argue that we're already bankrupt. Uh, the fiscal health of the country is not ideal. But you, you, you kind of need to, at some point, recognize the hand that you're dealt and ensure that you don't have a complete catastrophe. And so this is what he did, and I'm impressed by it. The other thing I would say, Jenna, and it's my frustration in general with politics, because you've got to be able to get deals done, right? You've got to be able to negotiate. And he did have a hard time only because the president of the United States was making it very clear from the get-go that he only wanted a clean debt ceiling and he wasn't going to do anything, you know, so he dug in his heels early on. That was Joe Biden's negotiating technique. That is not how you negotiate. And so I give McCarthy a ton of credit for being able to work through that. He did negotiate, and this is what adults do. It's why I tend to like people. I mean, you think about Glenn Youngkin is not running this time around, but he'd be a great candidate in the future. Somebody who actually has experience negotiating deals. He came from Carlisle. He understands economics. He understands the social stuff, obviously, clearly in Virginia as well. But we need more people. Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, the guy built two many hundred million dollar biotech companies. He understands it's not a zero sum game. You've got to come to the table willing to negotiate. You give some, you lose some, and hopefully you do the best thing for the United States of America and the American people. And for anybody to sit there and just poke fingers at what McCarthy's doing shows to me how either ill-informed they are, right, that they don't understand this. I doubt it. I, I think they do understand that. And it also shows how, um, well, egotistically, narcissistic, politically driven they really are. I mean, that's, they're like, wait, can I pick up a few more? I suspect, I mean, Jenna, between us, there's probably a lot of Trump holdouts within sort of the base of the party that are willing to kind of flirt with disaster. Maybe they don't understand exactly how bad it would be. I know they don't like Kevin McCarthy for a whole slew of reasons, but you know what? I, I don't either. But credit where credit is due. The guy is doing his job, and we need that. We need politicians in Washington who can actually do the job. Mm -hmm. Well, really well said, Trish. And I think that, you know, it's very easy to go out and, you know, do the the media hits and say, you know, oh, this should have been done better. Um, but but that that's kind of armchair quarterbacking and, you know, watching this unfold instead of genuinely being there in the trenches. And and I think that there are some, you know, people like um, Chip Roy and Bob Good, who are people that I I really respect, who are objecting this and, and they are in the trenches. And I think that some of their their commentary, you know, Know, back and forth um, is is legitimate, and we should look at that. But I'm talking about kind of the broader, you know, Republican Party that nothing is ever good enough, right? For a lot of people who sit back and say, "Okay, well, this needs to be totally perfect." Like, for example, you know, people who even complain about heartbeat bills, who are saying, "Well, no, it has to be, you know, no, absolutely no abortions from the moment of conception." Well, yes, in a totally ideal world, I absolutely agree with you. But the practical reality is that if we are saving babies from the moment of heartbeat forward, I'm going to take that and take that as a huge win over saying, well, it's it's just not good enough. And I think that as as Christians and as conservatives, 
we need to look at the practical reality and we need to also look at making some good steps toward a future goal. And that that starts also with electing the right people. So uh, Trish Regan, you can find her at the Trish Regan Show on the Salem Podcast Network. As always, if you'd like to write in and comment, Jenna at AFR.net. Always appreciate hearing from you. And we will be back with more tomorrow right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.